This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Today, as a special Christmas gift, the Return to Order Moment offers you a reading from the book Bethlehem by Father Frederick Faber. Father Faber, 1814-1863, was an English priest. He had been baptized as an Anglican and converted to Roman Catholicism in 1845. He is best known today as a composer of hymns, the most famous of which is Faith of Our Fathers, often sung on All Saints' Day. His book, Bethlehem, could perhaps be best described as a love song to the Holy Family. It's almost as though he was able to bring the book to the stable in Bethlehem, laying it next to the manger as the three wise men offered their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So this passage should be listened to as if it were a song. When listening to a song, one doesn't worry about the definition of each of the words. One tries to grasp the sense that those words represent. So it is when hearing passages from Father Faber's books. His sentences are long, far longer than those of most modern authors. His vocabulary is robust. One can almost see him at his desk, thinking for hours about using the exact perfect word. It's a difficult task, for Father Faber is trying to describe a mystery. We know it as the third joyful mystery of the Holy Rosary. It's the Incarnation, the point at which the limitless God took on the limitations of humanity. So if you hear a word that you're not familiar with, don't worry about that. Just keep listening, just as you do to a song, to get the deeper meaning of the whole passage. Our passage begins shortly after our Lord's birth. Our Lord and Our Lady are now asleep. The songs of the angels have returned to heaven from whence they came. The shepherds have returned to their flocks. The three kings have not yet arrived. It's quiet. The only person awake is St. Joseph, who has assumed the incredible responsibility and privilege of being the foster father of the Son of God. Even though he's a simple man, a carpenter by trade, God has given to him deep insights as to the nature of the child that he will raise, as we hear in this passage of Father Faber's Bethlehem. St. Joseph is kneeling by the child in the cave at Bethlehem. Let us draw near and kneel there with him and follow his thoughts afar off. It is but an hour since that babe was born into the world and gladdened Mary's eyes with the divine consolations of his face. It is but nine months since he was incarnate in the inner room at Nazareth. Yet neither Nazareth nor Bethlehem were his beginnings. He was eternal years old the moment he was born. Time which had already lived through such long cycles and had perhaps endured through huge secular epochs before the creation of man was younger by infinite ages than the babe of Bethlehem. The creation of the angels, with the beauty and exaltation of their first graces, the orderly worship of their hierarchies, their mysterious trial, the dreadful fall of one-third of their number, and Michael's battle with the rebels, lie dim and remote beyond the furthest mists of history. Yet the babe of Bethlehem is older far than that. 
Indeed, it was around him that all angelic history was grouped. He was at once their creator and the pattern after which they were created. The fall of those who fell and the perseverance of those who stood. Hereafter, he will spend a three years ministry in Galilee and among the towns of Judah and Benjamin. Yet in truth, all of the history of man's world, from the times of paradise to the hour of the Immaculate Conception, had been his ministry. He preached before Noah's flood. He gave his benediction to the tents of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He imparted grace and saved souls and wrought miracles in Jewry and in heathendom for some thousands of years. But now, by the sand glasses of men, he is one hour old. This one of the heavenly bodies was created to be, as it were, the garden, the Eden of his incarnation. And he adorned it in his love before Adam, the first copy of him, lived among its Asiatic shades. Perhaps it lay for ages in the glad sunshine, solitary, silent, in beautiful desolation, and he took complacence in the adorning of it. He loved perchance to see its beauty ripen, rather than to rise up at once complete. Continents sank slowly at his will, and new oceans rolled above their mountain tops or elevated steps. New lands rose out of the bosom of the deep. Floras of marvelous foliage waved in the sun, and the wisdom and joy of the babe of Bethlehem was in them. Faunas, strange, gigantic, terrible, possessed the waters and the land of his fashioning and for the delight of his glory. The central fires wrought beautifully and delicately the metals and gems which were for the altars of the babe of Bethlehem, for the tiara of his vicar, or the chasubles of his priests. The rocks and marbles ripened on the planet as fruits ripen on a tree, and the babe, the wisdom of the father, disported himself in the vast operation, the pacific uniformity, and the magnificent slowness of his own laws. The grandeur of those huge-leaved trees, the unwieldy life of those extinct monsters, the loveliness of now-sunken lands, were all for him who has just now been born in Bethlehem, and were not only for him, but were also his own doing. Bethlehem then was not his first home. We must seek him in an eternal home, if indeed he be older than the angels. The dark cave within and the moonlit slope without are not like the scenery of his everlasting home. He is the eternal word. He is the first word ever spoken, and he was spoken by God, and he is in all things equal to him by whom he was spoken. He was uttered from eternity, and the Father who uttered him or rather, who is forever uttering him, is not prior to the word he utters. His home has no scenery, no walls, no shape, no form, no color, no spot which can be loved with a local love. It is not in space, nor in imaginary space, nor within the world, nor at the world's edge, nor beyond it. It is the bosom of the Father.
It is amid the unfocalized fires of the Godhead. There, in the white light, inaccessible through the brilliance of its whiteness, we confusedly discern the magnificence of a divine person. He is unbegotten. He is not a word whom anyone could utter, for there is no one to utter him, and he is besides adorably unutterable. He is not a breath breathed forth of divine love, for there were none whose mutual love could breathe him forth, and he is besides adorably proceeding. The word expresses him, not because it utters him, but because he is uttered by him. The Holy Spirit is his fiery breath, the breath of the Father and the Son, co-equal with them both, but with no procession from his blessed self. The divine person whom we confusedly discern is like a fountain, a fountain of glowing light, flowing with uncreated waters. Yet the fountain is not a fountain without its waters, and the waters are coeval with the fountain. Out of him flows the Son. From him and from his word proceeds the Holy Ghost. All co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial. Yet he is the first person, and gloriously without superiority or precedence. He is the sole fountain of Godhead, yet it is the very glory of the fountain that its double streams are co-equal with itself. He, in his adorable sublimity, is the unsent inseparable companion of the two divine persons who are sent and who send themselves. Him, Without figure, we picture to ourselves amid those unfocalized fires. Him, without images, we discern in the breathlessness of our far-seeing faith. Him, without light, we behold in the darkness of his blinding majesty. Him, in his outstretched immensity, we compass in the fondness of our adoring love. Him, in his nameless incomprehensibility, we sweetly understand in the knowledge that we are his sons. His bosom, an abyss of unfathomable beauty, the shrine of unruffled peace, the furnace of the divine beatitude, is the home of the babe of Bethlehem, his only native place. Unbeginning is the life in that paternal bosom. Yet what do we mean by unbeginning? It is a thought we cannot think, too real a reality to be other than a mere word to finite creatures like ourselves. It is good to try to stretch ourselves to its height and breadth, for there is no rest equal to the weariness that comes of striving to embrace the thought of God. In that bosom, the divine person who is the babe of Bethlehem was born, yet who never began to be born and has never done being born. Never was the unbegotten father with the unborn son. Unbegotten and eternally begotten. What but faith shall distinguish between the two, faith or the vision which is faith's crown hereafter? As there never was a time when the son was yet unborn, so there can never be a time when he will cease being born. It is in eternity and not in time that his inexplicable generation finds room. 
He proceeds from the Father by way of generation. He proceeds from the understanding of the Father. He is the Father's understanding of Himself, or rather, He is produced by it. He is the expression of all the Father's perfections. He is not merely the similitude of the Father, because He is something more. He is consubstantial with Him. Yet He is not identical with the Father, because He is a distinct person from Him. The Father knows Himself. And by his knowledge of himself, the Son is born amid the splendors of uncreated holiness, amid the inconceivable jubilations of the divine perfections. Thus, the generation of the Son is not a mystery done and over. It was not an event at some remote point before time ever was. That which is eternal must always be going on. That which can end must have begun. We must be careful, therefore, always to bear in mind that the co equal, co eternal Son is ever being begotten in the bosom of the Father at this moment as well as from forever. There was no moment when he was not begotten, no moment when he is not being begotten. No place through all the amplitudes of omnipresence in which his eternal generation is not forever going on, close to us or far away from us, outside us in outward space, inside us in the noiseless center of our souls. Yet nowhere is the silence broken by that stupendous utterance of the Father. The omnipresent word does not so much as vibrate on the air when he rushes forth with the irresistible might of the Godhead. The clangor of his omnipotence is unheard. His all embracing light coruscates through the quiet night, and the darkness remains calm and still, like the plumage of a sleeping bird. Oh, How can we ever find a home where we are out of sight and hearing of that utterance of the Father? See how the spirits of angels and the blessed souls of men throng in, all day and night, to witness that eternal utterance, to bathe in its beatific light, and to be enchanted with its spiritual sound. This is the true birth of that babe of Bethlehem. Forever older than the hill on which Bethlehem is built, forever younger than the blossom of the wild thyme which opened its pink eye this morning on the greensward where the sheep were lying when the angels sang in heaven. Unutterably blessed is the life within that bosom of the Father. For while the Father is forever uttering his eternal word, he and the word are forever breathing forth the Holy Ghost, the uncreated fire of their mutual love and boundless jubilee, a person distinct from themselves, yet as it were the bond of the two, co-equal, co-eternal with them, the term of God, the limit of the illimitable, so that God, penetrating his whole creation, is not commingled nor confused with things. Such are the immutable necessities of the divine life, the inevitable uncreated productions of its understanding and its will, the twofold pulse of generation and procession, the beating heart of that exhaustless sea of being, with persons more distinct than any distinctions among creatures, yet with a unity which transcends all the identities of earth. Who can think of such a sanctuary and yet not tremble with excess of love? 
who can fix his eye of prayer upon it, and yet not tremble with excess of fear, lest haply he should miss of its unending vision. It was in that deep recess of an incalculable eternity that the babe of Bethlehem dwelt, before he was vouchsafed to take possession of the cave of Bethlehem. It is there we must seek his beginnings, which began not. It is thence that we must date the pedigree of the Eternal, who has no ancestry. It is in the light of that darkness that we must search Bethlehem and Nazareth, Egypt and the wilderness, to learn the mysteries of that mortal childhood of the Eternal Word. Deep in our souls, can we not see that bosom of the Father? Yet it is beautiful beyond thought, adorable beyond the stretch of created spirit. Created things give us no parallels. They furnish us with no images. The poetry of earth is but a distraction. The definitions of the faith only catch us as we fall. Yet somehow we see that bosom of the Father deep within ourselves, and it is familiar to us as a household sanctuary. We know that with all its immeasurable capacity of the divine life, it is actually within ourselves, and we behold our breath and seem to faint away upon it in the sweetest trance of helpless love. What manner of life was it which the Word led in the bosom of the Father? It was a creatureless life. There were no creatures, except in the purposes and decrees of the divine mind, and in the inexhaustible storehouses of the divine wisdom. God had always determined to create, because he was always love, and love craved more room, if we may dare to speak of him, who is infinitely self-sufficient, for the exuberant generosity of his justice, as well as for the incredible fertility of his wisdom. It is the justice of creation which makes it so loving a mystery. Time is an old creation, the most ancient of all creations. We look upon the myriads of many circled ages as on a vast ocean which stretches out of sight and is lost in the haze on the horizon when the angels came into being together with the elements of the material creation. Yet the furthest age spends its billows on the shore of time infinitely short of the creatureless life of the Word in the bosom of the Father. The ages seemed like a help to the comprehension of the unbeginning, but they play us false and only puzzle us more. How can a life be otherwise than indescribable to us creatures who live on matter and know by images, when it was a life without world, without time, without place, without motion, without fixedness, without parallels, without comparisons, without similitudes, almost without shadows. Only in the vast department of creation, in each huge epoch of time, part of the shadow of that divine life lies for our tracing. Yet, like a village at the mountain foot, all creation lies in the shadow, but the shadow of the peak overshoots it and it is cast far beyond. Its bliss was in its unity, but unlike created unities, it was free from the imperfection of solitude. It was the simplicity of one boundless life in the Pacific jubilant companionship of three distinct persons. 
There was no hierarchy among the persons, so that the imperfection of superiority did not attach to the Father any more than the infirmity of subordination to the Holy Ghost or to the Son. The distinctness of the persons only enhanced the unity of the Godhead, because the persons were unspeakably co-equal. It was a life of infinite complacency. God rested in himself. In himself his infinity was satisfied. The immensity of his own perfections lay before him, and he traversed them, so to speak, with his blessed understanding. To know himself infinite by his infinite knowledge was to be infinitely blissful. The imperfection of our human words is such that we cannot speak of God without seeming to divide him. We must therefore bear the adorable simplicity of God in mind while we thus discourse of the abysses of his divine life. It cannot be too often repeated that God has not many several attributes, nor even one, but he is simply God. He is not different from his perfections, nor are his perfections, strictly speaking, different from each other. He is himself infinite perfection in manifold simplicity. He is what he is, a simple act, God. But we may conceive of him as thus reposing in unutterable tranquility upon his knowledge of himself. We may imagine all his perfections to which theology has given cognizable names. Each one of them would give out to us multiplied or rather immeasurable wisdom, many sciences, many divine theologies, many rapturous contemplations. There were oceans of his own being in whose depths he could become divinely entranced. The very comprehension of himself, which no possible creature could share, was in itself unutterable bliss. There are also doubtless many perfections in him for which our created natures furnish no analogies and for which therefore we have no name. And each of these was a fresh infinity for the embrace of his jubilant self-comprehension. The simplicity of act, which characterized this illimitable self-comprehension, was most of all a delight beyond our imaginations. Here we must worship, for we must cease to reason or to portray. Even though here is silent and formless, the thought of God must fill our vacant minds. There is more light in the indistinctness of that thought than in the clearest demonstrations of human science. The love in the bosom of the Father was also a life of love, but of such love as passes our limited comprehension. Even created love is a very world of delights, and in one or other of its many departments it is the sunshine of life. It can bear the pressure of time and not give way. It can outlive wrong. It is mightier than death. It can change darkness to light. But if love has all these prerogatives among men, where it is so debased by its alliance with matter, how grand must be its empire among the pure and intellectual angels! With what spotless fires must it not burn in their magnificent intelligences! How many nameless species of transcending love must not those various species of glorious spirits know? 
We can hardly picture to ourselves angelic love, except as something fabulously bright and inexpressibly wonderful. We can think of the love of a seraph as all fire, the love of a cherub as resplendent light, or the love of a throne as deepest living peace, stability, and force combined. For it is to the choir of thrones that God has given the most special communication of his attribute of eternity. But what can we think of the angelic life of a thousand loves, so various because of their numbers and their kinds, so simple because of the uncomplicated excellence of their keen intelligence? Yet all this is nothing to the love in the life of God. It is an emanation from it, but infinitely diluted, a shadow of it, yet not only faint and faithless, but fragmentary and partial also. Who can ever dream of the love of the Father and the Son? Who can see in the depth of his mind, even far down among the thoughts which lies too deep for words, how that love proceeds from them both forevermore? It is a procession of uncreated fire, the outrolling of an uncreated ocean, outrolled beyond themselves, yet within the bosom of the Godhead. It is a jubilee with none to hear, the soundless thunder of eternal bliss beating on an immaterial shore. It is, or rather, He is, a divine person, co-equal with the Father and the Son, a person of unimaginable beauty, of incomprehensible sanctity, and of incomparable cognizable distinctness from the other two, who cease not and by necessity cannot cease from actively breathing him forth forevermore. What companionship also is there in that love? What exultation is the completion of the Godhead, which never was complete, never without his complement in that third person, never unlimited, but always illimitably what it is? Then while the Holy Ghost is produced by the love of the Father and the Son, there are the loves of all the three divine persons for each other, those twice three loves, which are the six pulses of the unity of God, each person has two loves in his love for the other two, and each of the loves of the three persons is simply a boundless world of life, of wisdom, and of jubilation. What, then, must the one love be, the single, simple, divine love, which is the union of all these? Could anything less adorably profound, less unimaginably capacious than an illimitable trinity of persons contain the vast waters of such an uncreated sea of love, or anything less omnipotent and simple than the divine unity hold without breaking the everlasting pacific tempests of such a tremendous and impetuous love? What words we have heaped together! Yet we may hope that it has not been altogether without ideas. It is one of the thoughts beneath whose broad shadow all the nations of the earth may gather and sit musing, 
that while the sun is shining, or the moon silvering the woods, or the noontide being lulled to sleep by its own fragrances, or the river lapsing down to the sea through tuneful groves and over cattle-spotted plains, this wonderful divine life is going on everywhere, close to us and far off, in our own country and in other lands, far above the Empyrean heaven and down in our own souls. It is a thought to make us very grave that this life of God holds us like a hand, penetrates us like a sword, and knows nothing of the space which gives us room or of the time which is flowing above our heads. As it has been from all eternity, so it is now. It has found no new place. Creation has not in any way displaced it. It has undergone no modification. It has acquired nothing, experienced nothing. Its ungrowing magnificence is ever fresh as the dawn, ever new as the first creation. It is always the same, yet never monotonous, illimitably outspread beyond all imaginary space. It is full, complete, intense, in every point of space at every point of time. A paradise of intellectual delights, a boundless fire of uncreated loves, an ocean of glad, wise, resistless being. It is glorious in its liberty and glorious in the grandeur of its necessities. It is a silence of amazing colloquies, a sanctuary of restful joys, a life of omnipotent and omnipresent simplicity, a union of three distinct, adorable persons. Surely, all creation is not as a feather in comparison of this. How little, by the side of this awful, majestic life, are all the schemes of men, how paltry their interests, how tame and tiresome seem the political revolutions of earth, the greatest discoveries of science, the most golden epochs of literature, when we think of this omnipresent life of God. All human joys appear but like the bursting of the foam bells on the crest of the wave, and all human sorrows but as the sighing of the night wind in the distant wood. And yet this vast life of God compasses both the sorrows and the joys with the tranquilest, watchfulest, minutest love. But to us they should seem even smaller than they seem to God, because the thought of the infinite dwarfs all things in our sight and ourselves also in our own estimation. What wonderful permission to us is the permission to love God, what then shall we say when we consider that we ourselves are to be admitted to the sight and enjoyment of this life of God? It is the very end for which we were created. Nay, more, we ourselves should have been in some sense, as we shall see presently, part of that divine life. We have been known and loved up in those regions of eternity, in those boundless tracts of uncreated being before the birth of time, and it is our very destination to enter into the joy of that exulting life, to see God as he is, and to live in endless companionship with him. 
It is our incredible bliss to be allowed to add one spark more to the glory, the outward glory of that blessed majesty. We can be one flash of lightning more around the immensity of his throne, one additional coruscation in the intolerable radiance of the merciful crown which he vouchsafes to wear. Infinitely little as we are, we are. And it is our joy of joys to be so, a fresh exercise to him of his irresponsible sovereignty. We are large enough to catch the light of his justice and be another place for it to shine upon. His mercy can beautifully reflect ourselves even in the shallows of our tiny souls. We can lie upon the shore of that exulting life and shine and glow and murmur while its bright waters wash over us forever. O oh, beautiful destiny of men! How happy is our present, our future, how much happier! How happy is our worship, how happy even the very fear with which we work out a salvation so magnificent and so divine! Such was the creatureless life which the eternal word lived in the bosom of the Father, creatureless yet not creatureless. The babe of Bethlehem was that eternal person. This concludes our Christmas offering from Bethlehem by Father Frederick Faber. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved, copyright 2020, by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP. God bless, and Merry Christmas.